Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Nima Farzan, CEO at Kinate Biopharma. Great to have you on today, Nima. Thanks for welcoming. My pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Nima, to kick us off, just talk to us about how you initially got interested in biotech, the arc of your career, and how you got to where you are today. For sure. I grew up in the Bay Area, and I grew up with Genentech being one of the major companies in the area and really an innovation workhorse and motivation for me. So I went to college at Stanford University here with a desire to do life sciences. I actually went there with its vision. There's a degree there called human biology. It's a mixture of life sciences and the impact that life sciences have on our society. And that's really been my focus is how do we take these exciting innovations in life science and apply it in society? So I came out of Stanford as an undergrad, worked briefly at BCG, Boston Consulting Group doing strategy consulting, and then started my journey in biotech in the late 90s, initially working in genomics, working on a company that was helping annotate the human genome project data that was being generated. This is the heyday of the human genome project, and it's appropriate we are now just celebrating the 20-year anniversary of the completion of the Human Genome Project. What I realized working in a small entrepreneur biotech is I needed to learn the ins and outs of the industry and really dedicate myself. And I thought the best way to do that was pharma. So I went to Harvard Business School and then I worked in Novartis for a number of years and in a wide variety of different roles, mostly in commercial, but also in development. Moved to Switzerland, then New York and Boston. I worked in cardiovascular, worked in metabolic, worked in infectious diseases. And after a period of time, I felt it was time for me to go back to the Bay Area and get back to entrepreneurship, which is what excites me. I came to a uh, startup vaccine company called Paxfax, ELO initially, and then I took over as CEO and helped grow that company from 25 people pre-IND all the way to licensure of the lead vaccine, the only FDA-approved vaccine for cholera. We also acquired along the way a commercial vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. So we were a fully integrated company from sales and marketing all the way to research. We ultimately sold that company and spent some time looking what company wanted to get into next. And that's when the opportunity at Kinate presented itself. And I jumped in at Kinate as CEO when we were about 10 people. Now grown back to about 100 people with multiple programs in the clinic and a public company. And definitely some interesting growing pains along the way. And we're happy to happy to talk about that. As, as well. Great. Thanks for that background, Nima. Curious, the first time that you took over as CEO versus now at Kinate, talk to us about how your own approach to leading has changed or evolved. And perhaps dating back now to your first role of the perhaps non-obvious learnings that you hadn't anticipated that you needed to quickly get comfortable with. Obviously, my vision of leadership has evolved a bit the second time through. When you're a first-time CEO, you want to control everything. You really get in there. You want to micromanage everything. You feel this weight on your shoulders that these people's jobs depend on me, the success of this vaccine and what impact it might have on patients depends on me. This is my chance to prove myself. And there is a real drive to manage every bit of the details. I think as you evolve and you gain confidence in that role. And the second time you do it, you empower more. 
And you really focus on building a team that is cohesive and works well together and complements each other with the different components and strengths and really trying to empower that team more. Still being decisive so that you can move the company forward, but you don't need to be involved in every decision and every piece of it along. That certainly resonates for me. Now, talk about when you first joined Kinate, how large was the team and how your role as the team has scaled and you've now gone public, how that's evolved too. I think it's an interesting story. So I joined Kinate as employee number 11. We had a scientific founder who unfortunately was diagnosed with lung cancer, has recently passed away, and the company needed to bring in a CEO to build. The company was an early research stage. I joined the company three days after I started, and the company was in San Diego at the time. I lived in San Francisco. We ran this vision. We'll grow in both places. But I flew down to San Diego. I had my first three days in the office, and that was it because we shut down because of COVID. I had started in March of 2020, and wow. three days after being in the office, we did not get back together for months, not years. And we had to grow this company virtually. And we had, it was a crazy start because right at the beginning of COVID, as you recall, right, I had my lead investor call and say, that Series B we had just raised as you started, you need to make that last for three years because who knows when you can raise more money. Within the month, he had called me back to say, hey, can you go public this year? That's how fast the markets had changed in March yeah. and April of 2020. So we did. We raised a Series C. We orged up. We had Goldman Sachs as our lead banker. We were like 14 employees when we did that. <laughs> it's pretty audacious. And we took the company public wow. that year, December of 2020. And all along, I had to build a team, hire a chief medical officer, hire a chief financial officer, hire a chief operating officer, hire the whole team, whole virtual. And really, as we were racing forward and raising money and going public, we started to build a company. We were a dozen odd people, right? And building that culture. I had to be very intentional about that. Even things like the team is split between San Diego and San Francisco. So no one wanted to fly. We each drove and met in the middle. We met at Pasta Robles for a week and met outdoors. And that's the kind of stuff we had to do to get this team together and build that culture while we were at the same time trying to go public and raise a lot of capital. Yeah, that, that's quite the story. At that time, the markets were certainly quite different than they are right now. Talk to us about now being a publicly traded company and how the current macroeconomic environment is informing how you and your team are thinking about value creation. That's a great question. And really, you're trying to find a balance. This is one of the hardest things about being, I think, a public company CEO. You want to be very responsive to shareholders, to investors, to that environment. You need to adjust as the world has changed, right? Obviously, the macro environment in terms of interest rates and more and markets are in a much worse place. We also have a fair bit of regulatory changes that have created, I think, a macro overhang. We can talk about that. And so you've got to be responsive. At the same time, you can't run your company based on what your share price did today. You have to have that vision that says, these are the right things we're doing and we're going to keep doing them. And these are the things we need to change because the macro has changed and our ability to ultimately raise capital on the public markets is different than what it was in 2020. And so we do have to adjust. So finding that balance is definitely one of the more challenging aspects of the job. It's about knowing what are the core principles that you have to adhere to and what are some areas that you do need to yeah, that's well stated, Nima. Before we jump into now talking about the work that you're pursuing at Kinate, would be great if you could educate us on the evolution of genomics over the last several years, as well as changes in the application of genomics during that time. I'd be happy to. As I said, I started my biotech career in the late 90s. It was a company called Double Twist. 
was using software to annotate the data coming from the Human Genome Project. And I distinctly remember the big bet that everyone had, how many genes will we find? And we had some of the leading bioinformaticists doing gene finding out of the raw data. And the average guess was around 100,000 or people that estimated there'd be 160,000 genes plus Human Genome Project came out and the answer was less than 30,000. We had no idea the complexity of the genome because it's not what, when I went to school, we called the central dogma. One gene equals one RNA equals one protein. That's not how it works. Far more complicated. And you've seen that now play out over 20 years of evolution since the Human Genome Project. We have now many drugs that target either a single allele mutation, these monogenic diseases. We have a number of cancer drugs that target a specific genomic driver. We can look in and say, hey, if you have the B600E mutation in your VRAF protein, then we've got a drug for you, regardless of what tumor type you have, whether it's lung or colorectal or melanoma, and we can treat. That's where we've got to today. Where I think we go to in the future, though, is continuing to get into this complexity of the, the genome, right? As I said, it's not all about just a single protein, single mutation. It's about constellations. And where we're going and some of the drugs that we're working on are no longer single mutation. It's a constellation of mutations. It's a variety of, of different genomic alterations that aren't just a single nucleotide change. There are fusions, there are insertions, there are deletions. There are diseases that aren't defined by a single change, but many different possible changes. So we talk about, for example, class two BRAF mutations, class one being that B600E, very defined single mutation. Class two are dozens of different alterations. Not all of them are even mutations. And now starting to think about going after that kind of complexity. And I think what you're going to see over the next 20 years, as we go through the next 20 years past Human Genome Project, is really embracing that complexity and really getting better at targeting beyond those kind of low-hanging fruit of single alteration, single gene. And as such, since you joined the company over the last three years and change, what has surprised or impressed you about the ecosystem as a whole in terms of the genomic space? And, you know, what's been really impressive is our ability to do this on an individual basis cheaply and quickly. And that's obviously been a long-term trend. But in cancer biology, for example, the emergence of circulating tumor DNA. And what that allows you to do is do a full genomic analysis, genome-wide sequencing and next-generation genomic analysis, including RNA to look for things like fusions that we can do on individual patients without having to do a biopsy, just from a blood draw, and being able to do that quickly. And we've incorporated that into our drug development. But those tools really make a big difference in our ability to identify patients, identify where we have signal, and ultimately, hopefully, where we can have impact as a drug. Yeah, certainly agree. I think it's the hope of many of us of convergence of improving tech on the diagnostic side to drive precision medicine, which obviously that's what you guys are working on as well. Let's talk now about Kinate and where you are from a development perspective and how you were thinking about indication selection and such, given the vast array of options that you have that you could go after. Currently has two different compounds in the clinic under really three programs. One, monotherapy for our lead program, exorafinate, which is targeting these class two BRAF mutations I highlighted. We also have a combination with an approved drug, a mechanibitor that we're looking at as well to expand on those indications into areas such as 
NRAS mutations, which are certain mutations typically found in melanoma, but in other tumor types as well. And we're doing that in combination. Uh, and then we also have a compound in the clinic targeting FGFR mutations, typically found in either urothelial carcinoma or intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. We've just announced two new programs that we intend to bring into the clinic, one by the second half of this year, one by the first half of next year. All these, again, are targeting specific mutations that we believe are oncogenic drivers, meaning these are alterations. As I said, they don't have to be a single nucleotide variant. These can be fusions or other alterations that drive a tumor in a variety of different settings. So a variety of different adult cell tumors typically can be lung, can be melanoma, can be colorectal, could be prostate, wherever it is where we can find these specific drivers that are mutated and targeting those with highly selective small molecule inhibitors. And given all that you could do with platform as powerful as what you're working on, how do you think about indication selection for early stage biotechs, particularly given this environment? The approach that we've taken is one to manage risk and capital expense, but also be able to take advantage of the innovation that's really happened, even in small molecule kinase inhibitors, which have been around a while in terms of really improving potential selectivity, potency, et cetera. So what we do is we start with where is there a validated dryer? What we don't want to be doing at this point is some of that discovery biology of, hey, let's find a new driver. Let's focus on the ones that have already been discovered, known to be drivers, but for which we don't think there's an optimal drug yet. And that may be because the drugs today are not as selective, so they have toxicity or tolerability issues. It may be that they don't cover all the different variants, the resistant variants that occur, or some of the initial variants that are there. Maybe they're not brain penetrant, so that if you have brain metastases, they're not going to be relevant. These are some of the features we look for. And then we design molecules to go after that unmet need. So we have a very clear unmet need we're never trying to hit. We're trying to hit these alterations that the current drugs don't. We're trying to be completely selective when the other drugs aren't. We actually have a model I know that Chlora believes in, certainly, which is this concept of outsourcing components of it so that you have the right team when you need it. You can ramp up, you can ramp down. So we have in-house designers, but then when we've got a program that is picking up steam, we will add external chemists through our collaborations. We can add 15, 20, 25 chemists on a program in as little as a month. Ramp up quickly, make the investment as that program goes through the chemistry component. And then, of course, we're back down when we don't need that many staff on these programs. And that has allowed us to bring our programs into the clinic very rapidly. We just announced a, a drug that will enter the clinic in the second half of this year. That went from idea to the clinic in two years, which is really fast. And a lot of that is yeah. because of this model that allows us to A, work on a validated driver, and B, bring in external resources quickly to accelerate development. If you're an HR or hiring manager in biotech, you know all too well that the pool of experts seeking full-time employment is shrinking. Filling key full-time positions can be a long, drawn-out ordeal that can slow the pace of execution and growth. Throw away the old hiring playbook. Now you can build a biotech dream team in a fraction of that time. Find out how. Visit Clora.com. Clora, talent optimized. In terms of leadership and culture now, sounds like one, you joined the team at the start of a pandemic, which is obviously extremely challenging. 
and you have a team that's now based in San Francisco and San Diego, I believe. Before we started recording, we were talking a bit about being immigrants. And I'm curious how I could ask you to reflect for a second how that aspect of you shapes how you approach team building, culture, and your own style of leadership. It's a great question. I'm an immigrant. I was born in Iran. Family came over in the very late 70s, so I was young. But nonetheless, it shapes who you are. I think it gives you drive and motivation to prove yourself. And you find out a lot of entrepreneurs. <laughs> you find out a lot of folks who've had that kind of background. And I'm very proud of, as an aside, and I'll, I'll talk about the culture in a moment, but I'm very proud of the fact that as a company, we have a very large number of immigrants. We track the best and the brightest from all over the world. And they want to come work in life science companies and tech companies in California. And that's a meaningful contributor to our talent pool. And I hope that we always maintain that kind of beacon and ability to bring the talent over. And I think it's an important component of diversity and inclusion to be able to welcome people from with that kind of background and, and empower them. In terms of our specifics, culture, we have four key values. And unlike typically we create values and you say, hey, you know what? Innovation, integrity, or whatever it is, you may come up with big words and you tell the company this is what it's going to be. We actually did a bottoms up. We spent time as a company saying, what are the things we are proud of that we've accomplished over the last few years? We put them all up on whiteboards. And then we started saying, what are the things that emerge from that? What are the things that led us to have these successes? Those are our values. So our values are audacity, agility, decisiveness, and inclusive ingenuity. And if I were to go through, we have little nicknames for each of them. The decisiveness is the Kenny Rogers trait. No one to hold them, no one to hold them. But I'll point to the first one as I think the component that really does come from that concept of being an immigrant, audacity. Do you have big goals, big vision? Do you really want to make a difference? And I think that is our key trait. And I think that all flows back to many of the team's personalities. And you talked about obviously culture and your own personal journey. Being a CEO sometimes can be quite a lonely journey. And this is the second time you're doing it now. I'm curious how your approach to just managing the emotional aspects of being CEO, especially given the fact that we work in biotech, more likely than not, most programs are going to fail. And any advice you have for folks that are in a similar boat? It's a great question because the ability to not get too high, not get too low is so important. And even going back to my first time, I think I'm better at it over time, you know, a little longer perspective. But even at my first time at PaxX, I remember having that conversation with some of my leadership team about it's a critical skill to have in biotech. There's going to be ups, there's going to be downs, any CEO job, and in particular in biotech. And the company looks to you to gauge the emotional reaction. If you get too high on the highs, you run the risk of complacency. You run the risk of people being like, hey, it's all done. And the answer is the job's never done. If you get too low, you scare people. You get people distracted. They're worried about what does this mean, their job. So that ability to remain constant, to have that sort of fixed vision that's here's where we're going. This is a bump in the road, but we're still on the right path is really important. It's hard. It's hard when the markets change. And some of it, you have to maintain the right external view, face, and convince yourself that I need to not get too high or too low about this. Yeah. And perhaps more specifically, what has worked well for you to be relatively constant externally? Experience really helps here, right? And we'll, we'll talk about career paths, but being able to draw upon a well of times where it didn't look like it was going to work out and you were able to ultimately find a way, having that confidence in yourself 
and your team that you know that you can make an impact as individuals and you can find a way through it. Having that history of having you, I'm a big Warriors fan. This is why I believe the Warriors have been successful even as they've gotten older. They know what it takes. They know they've done it before, so they know they can do it again. And having that confidence, I think, matters. Yeah, and I think certainly ties to that immigrant story as well, that fabric of resiliency. Certainly noticed a lot in folks that I've been speaking with. Great. Nima, would love to now zoom out a bit and talk a bit about where you see the field of genomics heading and obviously what are opportunities and then challenges that you want to call out as well. Sure. Yeah. So I've been with genomics over the last 20 years and probably the next 20 years. It's greater complexity than we thought. <laughs> and realizing that to have true targeted precision medicines, you have to be able to incorporate that complexity. As you try to move beyond the low-hanging fruit, you have to be thinking about multifactorial genomic components. And from the technology perspective, the opportunities, we talked about it already, as the cost of diagnostics and the technology of improving the predictability of predictions from diagnostics improve, we have a huge set of opportunities to develop drugs that are more targeted that are not just more targeted, but also available to many more patients. So today in targeted therapies and oncology, there are less than 10% of the patients that have a, a targeted therapy available to them. As we get better, both at diagnostics and continue to drive on the therapeutic innovation, we hope that a majority, if not most of these cancer patients can have a targeted therapy available. The challenge, frankly, right now is, I would say, on the regulatory side, because you have a very different model of developing drugs when you're looking at multifactorial genomic inputs. And you're going to get very small patient populations in some of the aspects of this. So you have to have regulatory and commercial innovation that keeps up with that. The regulatory innovation has to be, right now, the FDA prefers in cancer, for example, tumor-specific. So even though we can say, hey, we've got this alteration, we see it in 20 different tumor types, they still write you to start with one. Start in long and then show like but we're going to have to change that. We're going to have to be willing to look at the molecular basis of disease and use that as patient selection strategies. We're going to have small patient populations, so we're going to have innovative regulatory approaches to allow for the speed and cost-effectiveness of development that is required when you're looking at very targeted patient populations. And then that's where the commercial innovation has to come in too, right? And the model is obviously changing rapidly, but the model of sending out huge sales forces to go after big lung cancer is very different when you're looking at a genomically defined patient population that encompasses a wide variety of tumor types. You have to have a different sales model. You have to have a different regulatory pathway. And I think those are some of the challenges that the industry is going to have to adapt to, to allow for increasing the number of people that are relevant, that targeted therapies are applicable for. I certainly agree. And you brought up a point around building out sales teams and such. Given your background, I'd love to hear your thoughts on partnerships and the value of partnerships currently, particularly for early stage high growth companies like Kinate and the lens with which you view partnerships right now. Yeah. I think of partnerships, I call them the three C's. So are you looking for capital? Are you looking for credibility? Are you looking for capability? All three things can come through partnerships, right? So capital, of course, you can use equity, but you can also use partnerships to generate the capital that you need to develop. Credibility can come through if you got a platform you're trying to get validation for, but also the drug that maybe you're looking to partner with has a, a positive path forward and that credibility can be very helpful. And then the third thing is a capability. 
Where do you need capability that you don't have in your organization today? And it's interesting because it's easy to build, I think, or not easy, but relatively easy to build a biotech that has strong research and development expertise because there are a lot of people who have learned how to do it in big pharma, but have the cultural experience of having worked in small biotech, which is totally different. So you get a talent pool to attract them. When it comes to commercial, that's hard. There are a lot of people in big pharma who've done it, but not a lot who then also have done it in small biotech and have that cultural fit. Hiring straight out of big pharma, sometimes it's a 50-50 proposition whether they're going to fit culturally. And so it's harder to build some of that commercial capability. And that's where partnerships can make a lot of sense. And given where we are right now, so we're recording this in May of 2023, none of us have a crystal ball here. Where do you see the role of partnerships evolving over the next year? And perhaps even if some early stage entrepreneurs are listening, how would you help them navigate the current environment as it relates to staying focused, value creation, but then also obviously having to collaborate with external folks? The obvious thing, but it's worth repeating is, what is your cost and time to value inflection? And balancing that with the need to partner. So if you find yourself where, hey, I can with the application of $5 million in six months time, really de-risk this program, then you should do that on your own. You shouldn't look to go find that partnership, right? It is when you get to that place where you're like, okay, the next true de-risking event is two years and a hundred million dollars. Okay. Now maybe you need to think about the partnership. So having that mindset of, frankly, in our world, it's really about probability of success and de-risking that along the way in R&D. What is the next de-risking event? And being strict about that. It's not just what you think is the next de-risking event. What is the market going to think is the next de-risking event? What is a pharma partner going to think of as the next de-risking event? Can you generate that data in-house? And if you can, then you can capture more of that value. If you can't, then you need a partner. And Nima, on the heels of that salient advice, I wanted to ask you to reflect one more time. And if you think back to your younger self and given all the experiences and knowledge you've gained along the way, what is one piece of advice you wish you could now provide your younger self. Here's the thing. For someone who wants to be a biotech senior executive or CEO, which was my goal for a long time, what's not obvious is, I think initially in your career, is you tend to join a function. You're in business development, you're in marketing, you're in development, and you want to move up that path, right? And you're very focused on how do I accelerate my career to get to the director level, senior director level, VP level, et cetera. In reality, cross-functional expertise is what you need. And it's not necessarily about tremendous depth in marketing. It's but can you understand in biotech, I think is one of the more complex endeavors that we do in terms of business. Do you understand the basic science and the research? Do you understand the development aspects? Do you understand the CMC? Do you understand the commercial? And so taking some time in your early part of your career to go to a department or function that is not where you're started and not where you're strong at, not where your career has been building momentum on, even if it takes you a year or two off of your path, go get some experience in regulatory, get some experience in project management. A lot of companies have these concepts of dev leads or global program heads, which is really cross-functional role. Have that, get that kind of experience. Really understand the different aspects of the business. And even if you're not going to be a CEO, being a senior exec in a function, being a CFO or a chief marketing officer, it will be showing you tremendously to really understand these other functions. And taking a little time early in your career to divert yourself from the path you're on will pay long-term dividends. Yeah. You bring up a, an important point here. And part of your background through the coming up through the sales and marketing 
aspects of biotech is really interesting. And I think we're starting to see more and more of that in at early stage biotechs. And there's no right or wrong answer here. There's folks that are founders and have a scientific background and so on. And then there's folks that are phenotypically similar to you. I'm curious if you've observed any themes or advantages that someone with your background in terms of late stage development brings to an early stage biotech that's worth calling out? Yeah, it's a great point. And I do think that commentary I gave earlier around the concept of value inflection points and being rigorous about what an external view of those value inflection points are, that's the lens that you can bring when you've got some of that late stage experience. I was lucky enough to have done late stage, but also work a lot with the research group and new product planning and things like that so that I can understand the language of discovery, but have that perspective that says, ultimately, that isn't going to move the needle for a commercial organization, for a pharma company, for the market, for patients, for clinicians who are going to prescribe, this will move the needle. And therefore, knowing what that value inflection point is and being rigorous about how long and how expensive does it get there as opposed to sometimes going down other paths that may be scientifically interesting, but aren't answering the critical question you need to answer to know whether you have a drug to move to the next stage. Yeah. Wonderful point, Nima. Thanks so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you on and for sharing your own personal story and how you approach leadership and obviously the important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Kinate. Thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.